Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast host. Hi, I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 313 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, we're talking with Olivier Sibony about learning to recognize biases in your day-to-day decisions. Today's podcast is brought to you by Text Expander, ESQ Marketing, Postali, and Cosmolex. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned because we'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. So, Lord, today I thought we would share with our listeners something that our leadership team just did, which was some training around a book called QBQ, The Question Behind the Question. Yes, this is a short but powerful read that really leads with a message of personal accountability under the framework of the kinds of questions that we ask or often default to. So what was kind of your some of your biggest takeaways from this book? Yeah, it was interesting in that what they have you do is is, is they teach you a way to to reframe the question inside your head when you're reacting to situations. And the idea is that once you do that, it sort of allows you to take personal accountability for what's going on instead of, you know, blaming someone else or procrastinating. And so I thought it was really interesting, like how you can reframe things like, how can I be a better leader? Or what can I do to show up in this situation? Or how can I communicate more effectively instead of asking you know, when, like, when is somebody else going to do this or why? Like they, they were really, it was really interesting. And they're like, why doesn't really help you move through the situation or solve the problem? Yeah. I loved that too. A coach that I worked with once used to, you know, ask us when we would say something about like, what's the obstacle we're facing? He would say, you're in BED mode, blame excuses or denial mode. And just thinking about how we frame statements or questions away from things like, Why can't we find good people? Who dropped the ball Mm -hmm. in this particular situation? That was really powerful. And I loved there was a whole discussion in there about, especially with bigger teams, but it's true with any team, sometimes we pit departments against each other. Like, oh, let me check with shipping. That's actually their fault. Or we can blame the people in sales because they're the ones who usually mess this up and slow it down. And especially when you're facing with a customer or a client, blaming those other departments or people does not make you look like a unified team whatsoever. Um, So it's not helping you within the team, but it's also not helping the way that people perceive you. And I thought that was really important because I think we can all think of examples when we've been on either end of that situation. Yeah. And I, I think what's powerful about this framework is it's something that obviously leaders could benefit from. But, you know, really everyone on the team. So I think this is where a lot of leaders struggle because they want their team to have that person accountability and to not just jump to it's somebody else's fault. It's like, how do you teach someone ownership, which seems like a big amorphous concept when we just say it like that. And so what I like is that this really gives everyone on the team, if you have everyone read it um, and do it, 
a, a tool for how they can start shifting their thinking and, and taking personal ownership of a situation by just really changing the way you ask the question. And if you're thinking about ways that you can engage your team members or your leadership team, this is a great book to kick off with. And I've found it's not just the reading of it, but we've done something similar with some of our teams where we're reading the same books on user accessibility and user experience on websites. And it's the reading of the material and then the group discussion around it or the questions that remain for someone after they read it. That's when you can really start to uncover some of those golden nuggets and think about how you can apply them to your business. So this is a great exercise to do not just for your own professional and personal development, but with specific teams as well. Now we have my conversation with Olivier. Hi, I'm Olivier Souvenir. I'm a professor of strategy at HEC in Paris. And I'm the author of You're About to Make a Terrible Mistake. <laughs> I like that. So let's start right there. Can you tell us a little bit more about the concept behind You're About to Make a Terrible Mistake? Well, the concept, Laura, is that um, before being a professor, I used to be a management consultant. I was with McKinsey for about 25 years, and I would work with great people, great CEOs, great business unit heads, great entrepreneurs. And from time to time, obviously not always, but from time to time, they would make terrible mistakes. And I always found it very intriguing that those great leaders would make what was obviously a mistake, it was obvious to me as an outsider, as a, as a kid, really, as a, as a beginner in the trade of consulting, it was obvious that they were doing something silly, and yet they were doing it. And I found that sufficiently intriguing to want to study it and to actually turn this into my second career. So that's what I study now, strategic mistakes. I like that. So let's dig in a little bit more. What is an example of a strategic mistake that seems to make sense to us as outsiders as, oh, that was a mistake. Why would that person come to that conclusion? But it sounds like there's often more at play there. So one of the, um, one of the classic examples is the, the temptation to believe that you're going to be different from everyone else. <laughs> And usually that you're going to be better than everyone else. And that is especially striking when people make big moves. Uh, the, the obvious example is acquisitions. If you look at the statistics on acquisitions, of course, some are great successes. And those are the ones that we always hear about. But the majority are disappointing. And when you talk to people who are about to embark on an acquisition or who are contemplating an acquisition, they always think that they are going to be among the 10% who are the you know, the, the, the wild successes, and no one ever thinks that they're going to be in the average, which is a bit disappointing or worse. Um, that's a typical example. There are many more. Basically, the, the underlying bias here is a well-known one. It's overconfidence. We all think we're above average. We all think the normal rules of life do not apply to us. And sadly, from time to time, they do. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about some of these other biases that can come up. I think one that is really problematic for business owners is this idea of confirmation bias. When you're trying to solve a problem, whether that's hiring someone new because of a gap you perceive or launching a new service or rebranding or whatever it might be, confirmation bias can really make it seem like you're headed down the right path. How do we know when we're most likely to fall victim to that and, and be more aware of it? So we, I mean, the, the problem with confirmation bias, like, like every other bias, is we don't know. And that's the, that's the whole point. 
the the difference between biases and and plain old mistakes, right, from which we can learn, is that we are not aware that we are in the in the grip of confirmation bias. We just think that we are looking at the problem objectively, and we don't realize that we are actually not looking at all the sides of the problem, and that if we were, we would see that the candidate we think is great. In fact, we haven't asked the tough questions because we think the candidate is great and we've only asked the easy questions, to take your example of a candidate. So what we can do uh, is to get help, to get challenge, to get someone else to look at the problem with a different pair of eyes, with a different perspective, with a different history, a different set of biases, and that will lead us to get basically another perspective on the problem. And the trick is, if we wait until we have a doubt to do that, it's not good enough, right? Because it's precisely when we are dead sure that we are right, that we may in fact be in the throes <laughs> of confirmation bias. So if we want this to work, we need to turn it into a discipline, into a decision-making process where we systematically reach for someone who disagrees with us. And of course, that's a little bit unpleasant if you if you phrase it that way, but it's actually a very good discipline of some of the best decision makers. These ideas make a lot of sense, especially when you think about bigger companies and corporations. A lot of our audience are essentially small business owners, right? They run a law firm, so they are both practicing the law and handling the business aspect of it. That feels really hard from a decision-making perspective when you're the one who has to make all of the decisions, and it's very easy to get into that routine. Can you talk about some examples of where you might find that person who can challenge you on things? Is it a coach? Is it a colleague? I'm just sort of curious where you would find the best sources for that. So it's interesting. Um, in the process of writing the book, I've looked for lots of examples of the of, of the good practices of good decision makers who find ways to overcome biases. And I've interviewed as many small business owners as large executives. My background was mostly with working with big corporations, as you can guess, but I actually interviewed a lot of small business owners and founders and entrepreneurs. And I found that many of the best ways, in fact, to deal with the kind of uncertainty and with the biases that we're talking about are the practices that are natural to the small business owners and that the large businesses would do well to emulate. I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the founders I interviewed told me, you know, everything you're writing about biases is absolutely true, but it doesn't apply to me. And so I said, well, why do you say that? I, I see this coming. That's what every CEO of a big corporation tells me. They tell me, you know, it doesn't apply to me because I'm so smart. And no, that's not what he told me. He told me, no, it doesn't apply to me because we are a pair of co-founders and we are radically different. One is the business person and the other is the creative. We never agree on anything at the start. And since it takes a consensus between the two of us to actually get anything done, and since we never agree at the beginning, it's a very good safeguard against the sort of biases that you have in mind. So I thought that was interesting. It's an example of how even in a very small organization, if you've got the right governance structure, if you will, you can make that happen. Now, not everyone has a co-founder. So who are the people who are going to help you and to challenge you? Sometimes it's your board. But surprisingly often, it's some sort of informal advisor. You know, for many entrepreneurs, it's their spouse. For lots of entrepreneurs, it's their you know, old-time sidekick. You know, they, <laughs> many, many entrepreneurs have a sort of 
loyal friend with whom they've worked um, all along. Um, and a lot of people find a way to do this instinctively. Now, the big advantage that small companies have over big ones is that they don't have all the politics. A big part of what makes biases prosper in organizations is the groupthink and the politics and the what I sometimes call the sunflower management, where everybody turns to the sun, if you see what I mean. Now, that can also happen in a small company, but it's thankfully a bit less frequent. So I think small companies and, 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 and small firms have a lot to teach big companies in this respect. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll keep talking a little bit about how you can be aware of or even approach biases in your business. Support for today's episode comes from Text Expander. Get ahead of your productivity for the new year with easy-to-use cross-platform snippets. Text Expander makes quick work of mundane, repetitive tasks so you can focus on what matters most. Say goodbye to needless text entry, spelling and grammar errors, and inconsistency in your messaging. When you use Text Expander, you can say the same thing, the right thing, in just a few keystrokes. Text Expander can be used in any platform, any app, anywhere you type. These versatile snippets are better than copy and paste, and they're better than scripts and templates. They work across devices and platforms to allow you to maximize your efficiency while still customizing and personalizing your messages. So take your time back in the new year and increase your productivity with Text Expander. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more. Support for today's episode comes from ESQ Marketing, an agency that believes in affordable and reliable marketing for solo practitioners and small law firms. With ESQ Marketing, you'll work with experts in legal marketing. All of their intense focus is on helping attorneys generate more clients and cases from the internet. They don't work with anyone else. You'll breathe easy with low-risk, month-to-month contracts, and there are no long-term commitments. ESQ Marketing earns the right to work for your firm each and every month. Best of all, you'll get direct access to the person working on your account. No account managers to deal with and no lost in translation with your requests. To see if you're a fit, visit esq.marketing forward slash lawyerist to get started. Support for today's episode comes from Postali, a full service legal marketing agency for law firms. The attorney-client relationship is the cornerstone of the legal profession. Just like you put the client's needs first, you deserve a marketing agency that does the same to grow your practice. Postali works with law firms nationwide and is the only full-service legal marketing agency that can call itself a marketing fiduciary. That's because, at Postali, the impressive results they achieve come from always putting your law firm's financial interests above their own. Imagine a relationship with a legal marketing agency that treats your investment as they would their own dollars, without hollow SEO promises, no commission-based upselling, and who won't work with your competitors. Postali is the marketing agency for legal professionals looking for 100% transparency and genuine guidance from a real marketing partner. To learn more about the benefits of working with a marketing fiduciary, visit postali.com forward slash lawyerist. Contact them for a free consult and mention this podcast. Today's challenging and fluctuating business climate requires law firms to be flexible in the way they run their practice. Whether you're working remotely, in the office, or a combination of the two, 
you need to be able to work effectively and efficiently on the go at any time. That's why Cosmolex offers a cloud-based total law practice management system with built-in compliance for trust and general legal accounting. With Cosmolex, you get everything you need to run your practice in one solution with 24-7 mobile access that's both secure and easy to use. You'll be able to stay on top of all your billable activities no matter where you are, and your clients will love the direct and secure communication in the client portal. The Cosmolex migration team will ensure all your data is moved into your new system safely and securely so your firm can be up and running in no time. To learn more about Cosmolex Total Law Practice Management System, visit Cosmolex.com forward slash lawyerist. So I want to talk a little bit about a story that comes from your book. It's when you had that outside perspective of a project or a decision that seemed like it wasn't a good fit. In this particular example, it was talking about an acquisition and you had thought and many others had thought that an acquisition shouldn't come at that point in time, even though it would make them a global company. And the CEO disagreed and had other factors that they had considered in making that decision. Can you talk a little bit about how we know what those potential other factors are we should consider. When is that chief decision maker okay to veer off the path? So what makes this story doubly funny is that the reason that the CEO was giving to make the acquisition, despite all the numbers not working out, was actually a completely inadmissible reason. I mean, it was basically he was saying, yeah, I'm going to overpay, but the exchange rates are going to work in my favor, so that will make up for my mistake, which obviously is not something that any responsible CEO should do. He was basically saying, I'm going to take a gamble on the foreign exchange, and that's going to offset the loss that I'm going to take by overpaying for the acquisition. That's the first funny part of the story. The other funny part of the story is that the gamble paid off. He won. And he went on, I, I, I wish I could tell you his name, um, I'm, I'm not at liberty to, he went on to be one of the most successful and one of the most admired CEOs in his country, and the empire that he built through that move is still a, a highly prosperous world leader. So what this tells you is actually very important. If you take risks, including crazy risks, and this was a crazy risk, sometimes you will win. Right, And this raises a very important question for every entrepreneur, and especially for every CEO who is not playing with his own money, but with the money of his shoulders, which is, how much risk are you prepared to take? If this guy had failed, we would have forgotten about him, right? I mean, he would have uh, stayed CEO for a couple of years, and then probably the board would have thanked him and told him, well, that didn't work. Uh, let's move on to something else. But he wouldn't have lost much. He didn't have much to lose. Whereas by making this bet and taking this big risk, he personally stood to gain a lot. And he did gain a lot because he took an outside risk and he ended up being lucky for reasons that had nothing to do with his skill. So this is another area in which, um, interestingly, smaller businesses are much more responsible than big businesses because their interests are more clearly aligned. Every entrepreneur I've interviewed has told me, you know, this, this vision, this myth that entrepreneurs are big risk takers, it's a myth. Entrepreneurs know that a dollar is a dollar and that you don't bet the farm because you have only one farm. This big risk taking, let you know, let's be bold and audacious behavior, that's for 
CEOs who are getting their paycheck at the end of the month come hell or high water. It's, it's not for the real entrepreneurs whose money is on the line. And I think, again, this is an area in which the big businesses could you know, take a few pages from the playbook of the small ones. I like the way that you put that because we often think of the small businesses of they're at a disadvantage because the owner is often wearing 25 different hats at any given time and they don't have the budget or some of the luxuries to try some of those different risks, but that strategic decision-making still applies. One of the things that you talked about that that story reminded me of is that there's no doubt that our biases lead us astray, but you say there's a method to the madness, that it's not random in the way that we get led astray by our biases. Can you talk a little more about that? Well, there's um, there's a predictability in the mistakes that the bias makers uh, make, but I think what you mean here is that there's a method to, uh, especially for the small businesses, there's a method to deal with the uncertainty that is inherent in business. And what, again, I found, um, I, I find myself singing the praise of small businesses today, but it's, it's true. What small businesses do better than large ones is that they deal with uncertainty and they give themselves the flexibility that it takes to deal with uncertainty a lot better than big ones. I'm reminded of an interview I had with the, the owner of a fairly small firm of luxury products who is telling me, look, I'm competing with all the big behemoths of, of luxury. And every time they want to try something new, and at that time, everybody in this particular segment of the industry was trying a new retail strategy, they throw a lot of money at it. So they will open stores with their brand on it in every country in the world. I can't afford to do that. So I actually do it in a smarter way. I, I can't afford to take that risk. So I'm going to find a way to learn. I'm going to find an alliance. I'm going to find someone I can play with who is going to put their money on the line. I'm going to put my brand and we're going to find a smarter way to do that. It turned out in that particular example that the new retail format really didn't work. So the big companies that were making the big bets lost a lot of money because they had taken very big bets. And this uh, CEO I was interviewing did not lose a lot. In fact, he did not lose anything at all because he was under those constraints that kept him honest and sensible. So the, the, the method to the madness or the, the method to avoid the madness in this case is try to keep as much flexibility as you can when you're dealing with something risky. Remain aware, and this is especially true, and this is, this is a cliche nowadays, but in regular times, it's not such a cliche, that there is a lot of uncertainty out there. And when there is a lot of uncertainty, Every commitment that you make is, you know, should be, in as much as possible, a reversible commitment. If you try to think that way, if you try to think about your decision-making in such a way that your commitments are reversible, you actually create yourself a lot of degrees of freedom, which often people don't think about simply because they don't ask the question. We've talked a lot about this idea of recognizing or at least being aware of individual biases, is it possible to overcome a bias or is it just that we need to know that it's something that we may kind of be victim to? It's a long debate among theorists whether you can actually overcome a bias. I think for practical purposes, the answer is probably no. But it doesn't matter because you don't have to overcome your biases if you find a way for your company or your firm to make decisions that are not negatively affected by your biases. If you put in place a good decision-making process and you get enough collaboration and enough method, enough process, 
you're going to make sure that your ideas get sufficient challenge, get sufficient pushback from other people. You're going to make sure that you get enough diversity in the ideas that you generate. And you're going to make sure that you've got a method to get to closure when those various points of view have been expressed, because the last thing you want, of course, is to have an endless debate without any decision being made in the end. Once you've put in place a process to make a decision in this way, the fact that you have your biases and other people who are participating in this process have their own biases is not a bug, it's a feature. It's part of what is going to stimulate the debate and to make sure that you've got different opinions and that you resolve them in a fact-based manner. And that doesn't require you to change yourself deeply and to you know, flagellate yourself and to say, I'm biased, I'm biased, which really is not very productive. So think less about your biases. That's actually not that interesting. Think more about the process that you're going to put in place to overcome your, to not overcome your biases, but to uh, overcome the, avoid the mistakes that you would make if you let your biases have, uh, have their way, basically. Can you give an example of, you mentioned just now this idea of the process of getting to closure. What does that, you know, what might that look like, recognizing that there's probably some different examples there, but what's one example of what that may look like? There's lots of examples. I try to give a lot of very practical tips uh, in the book. There's literally 40 uh, practices. I'll give you one example out of the 40, which is a fantastic tip invented by a psychologist called Gary Klein, and it's called the pre-mortem. And if you haven't practiced a pre-mortem, you can try tomorrow morning. It's really easy. You're about to make a decision. You're sitting with your team and you've discussed the decision and you've thought about it and you're about to press the button on that decision, whatever it is. It may be to hire someone or it may be to launch a new service line in your firm or it may be to move into a new headquarters or, you know, or, or to acquire another firm, whatever it is. You're about to make the decision and you're going to say, look, let's imagine that we are three years from now and this decision we're about to make has been a terrible disaster. And we are sitting together and doing the post-mortem of that disaster to try to figure out what happened and to learn the lesson from it. Now, each of us is going to take a sheet of paper and we're going to write down for two minutes, literally two minutes, we're going to write down three to five reasons why it was a disaster, past tense, right? Why it was a disaster, why this failed. And then, we go around the table and everyone lists the things that he or she has written down. Now, why does that work? First, it takes two minutes. So it's not a big imposition. Second, you project yourself in a future where you have failed and you ask people to explain why it has failed, which is not at all the same thing as asking people, you know, does anyone think that anything could go wrong with this great plan of mine? <laughs> which is what we, what we normally do. And of course, when you ask the question that way, people don't speak up. And the other thing that is really important is by getting people to write their thoughts first, you make sure that if the first two people say, you know, well, actually, I don't think anything could possibly go wrong. This is such a great idea. The third person who had actually written down five things, and everybody can see that she had written down five things on her sheet of paper, is actually going to have to speak up. So it's a lot of small things. It's really about the details of how you how you orchestrate the dialogue, but those kinds of things can completely change the tone of the conversation from a meeting in which everybody nods and says, yes, boss, you're right, to a meeting in which you have a true debate. And that involves more 
thought from other people that kind of helps you recognize where some of the biases you may not have recognized individually are at. So I love that idea. And that's just one exercise. We will put a link to your book in the show notes. Where else can people go to learn a little bit more about the work that you do? Uh, well, they can go to my website uh, where they will find a few videos and articles and so on that are referenced. And they can read my other books, some of which are published already and others will come out in 2021. Thank you so much. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Christopher Eng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read The Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com community lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by their participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.